clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 43rd meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Meredith with the strawberry blonde pillage. And I'm shrimp cosplayer Mike. And we like to meet every week at our clubhouse we call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. <laughs> we are back in the D station. That's Dalmatian station. We sure are, Meredith. I'm happy to be back. It's been a little bit of time away for us, which has been okay with me. Yeah. I mean, we were traveling, encountering animals outside of our normal environs. It was great. We could kind of think of it as like we took a little um, research sabbatical, if you will. Yeah, that's definitely how I feel. I felt like I really got deep into this kind of alternate animal lifestyle. I saw some deer in their natural habitat. So did I. So fun. Yeah, I spent some time floating in a pool, staring up at the sky, just pretending I was a shrimp, which was really fun. Ugh, isn't that so nice? Yeah, it was very nice. There were a lot of like pool floaties going on, so I was able to kind of float around and use my sort of flipper, my fetus flipper, you know, explore different locomotory motions, ways of transit and travel throughout the water with just thinking about nothing except the sky. It's just so lovely. I've become a big fan of shrimp life this summer too. I floated in a pool similarly and uh, looked at the sky. At another point, Mozart's Requiem was playing. It was all very dramatic and wonderful. But yeah, shrimp life is the best summer life. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And I also spent a lot of time when I was in the pool thinking about how like on alligators and hippopotamuses and other creatures, how there is this sort of like the waterline is dependent on making sure your nose and your ears are kind of above the water. Yeah. And so I was doing a lot of fun experimentation with that where like half my head was underwater and half of it was above water. Yeah. And I was just thinking about how if I did that for a couple million years, maybe I'd evolve into a crocodile. Oh, it's possible. Reach for the stars, Mike. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, that's my goal. You can do it. You too can become a crocodile. What a blessing. (laughs) I love this. One of my main research moments over this past little two-week vacay was that I was listening to just how freaking loud all of the night insects and various night creatures are because there was a point at home in Cincinnati when I had like the back window open at night, say like 12 o'clock. And it is like definitely, 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 definitely loud, loud, loud outside at night. And I was trying to count all the different sounds. And I think I counted like six different sound, like individual sounds, like be it a cricket, cricketing or cicadas there was like a little maraca thing it would just be like every once in a while so it was fun I counted six different ones and we thought maybe there was even if there was just like I don't know four or five of each which I'm sure there were many more but it still would have been very loud sure sure yeah so just some insectual sonic experiences I love that journey for you thank you I guess do you want to get right into it I think we should. Okay, great. Well, let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Ready? Okay. Taxona you. Taxona we. Taxona who. Taxona me. Kingdom. In Amelia. It's because we like animals. Phylum. Chordata. This spine makes an S shape. Class. Aves. Wings, beaks, and hollow bones. Order. Pelicaniforms. Medium to large water birds. Family. Day, Sexy, long-legged coastal bird. Genus. Arida. Linnaeus thought these birds were great. Species. 
Arida Herodias. Slick back your hair and spear some fish. It's the great blue heron. Wow. Of all birds, the heron. Have we done the heron before or no? No, we have not. We've done no herons. It's been a heron-free podcast until now. So far. But we have talked about pelicaniforms, the order. Right. I remember that. That has come up before in reference to the shoebill, stork. Sure, the shoebill. Yeah. So the shoebill is also in the order of pelicaniforms. And so actually, this is a great segue into some tax facts regarding our great blue heron. So pelicaniforms, interestingly, initially only included birds that had four webbed toes. So you can think about like cormorants and ducks and things with kind of those paddle feet, like pelicans. Sure. Or like boobies. (laughs) But this has since been expanded to include ibises and spoonbills and storks, hence the shoebill stork, and the great blue heron, which if you think, if you've ever seen the heron, and chances are you probably have if you spent any time around like ponds or lakes, because they really love like the coastal areas. And they're pretty much present in all of North America, not like all of Canada included, but most of the United States and a big good deal of Canada, you can find herons either migrating or um, just kind of living permanently. Yeah, I feel like it was a creature that we always saw like at the, um, you know, whatever camping site or wherever we would be or driving, you know, through one of those like new developments through a formerly marshland type area. Yep. And there would just always be a heron, you know. Yeah, they're super cool. They're like really interesting, interesting birds that are available to everybody. Pretty much no matter where you live, if you live in the United States, of course. Sure. So, and they're really cool to kind of watch in action. But if you think about them and if you spend any time looking at them, you know they've got very long legs and these like big old feet. And those big old feet have these like long, like four long toes. And you know that they're not webbed. So it's kind of interesting to think that these only webbed footed birds could have formerly been considered in the pelicaniform order But it's since been expanded to include things like even penguins, even loons, and our friend the great blue heron. But the family of our day day, I think I really massacred this in the taxonomy cheer. Forgive me. I like to try to do a one and done with the taxonomy cheer. It's like takes in the show (laughs) Saved by the Bell. Sure. First take is the best and only take. Yeah. You'll often hear... Verbal typos in there, me trying to figure out how to pronounce the words on the fly. So I think I definitely, it's like our day day, I think, is where it breaks down into herons. <laughs> just to, you know, just as like a taxonomy strategy, I will separate the words by hyphens. Yeah. If they're like tricky, you know. I should do that. That's a very good tax tip, Mike. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm here for tax tips, you know. Just some behind the scenes, like producer, like constructive feedback. I like this. Yeah, we're throwing open the barn doors to the notes session. I love it. Moving on. So we know family, our our day day. This is our herons generally. And then we move into genus Ardea, which means heron in Latin. And so Linnaeus thought these birds were great, as in they were all bigger birds. So the heron itself, he ranges and she ranges, and they range from about three feet to four and a half feet. So these are actually really tall birds. Yeah. They're like some of the the biggest birds in North America. Yeah. It's a lot of leg, if I remember right. They are very leggy birds, like many wading birds, birds that wade through the shallow waters to catch catch fish mm. and other foods. Mm-hmm. They'll often have these like really long gangly legs that make them look like at once very silly, but also kind of like bird sexy. Sexy bird legs. Sexy bird legs. Exactly. It's like a um, Flight of the Concord song or something. Yeah. Leggy, leggy bird. Okay. So Linnaeus thought these were great, but by great, he, he was just referring to a group of herons that's over 100 centimeters tall. Which I guess in inches would be. Well, one inch is 2.5 centimeters. So Mm -hmm. 10 inches is 25 centimeters. So 100 centimeters would be 40 inches, which is like three feet and four inches. Okay. Yeah. So 
any birds over three feet and four inches. Thank you for that quick math, Mike. You're welcome. I'm here for your conversions from centimeters to inches and back again. It's 2.54 centimeters per inch. That's fantastic. Well, Carl Linnaeus thinks you're great, too. Well, I think Carl Linnaeus is problematic. I think he is, too. I don't think Carl Linnaeus is great, but he thinks you're great, and he thinks these birds were great. Okay, so moving on to species, the Ardea Herodias, which is Herodias is Greek for heron. So in their species name, they have both the Latin and the Greek names for them covered. Ardea Herodias. Thank you. Now, I talked a bit about the appearance already, but because it's the great blue heron, we can expect them to have gray-blue feathers, also known as slaty. (laughs) Great color, slaty. Blue-gray feathers on most of their body and wings. They've kind of got black and white streaks on their front. And then they've got these, and some of them have um, like a big stripe, a black stripe down like from their forehead that goes all the way back to their head feathers. And their head feathers are like slicked back almost like kind of like a greasy lawyer or finance guy would have his hair slicked back. We like to refer to it as like heron hair Uh because they've got those feathers that kind of go down their back. It's very cute. So those feathers are kind of long and pointy. They're like plume-like. And they also have those plume-like feathers around kind of their necks and upper chests. So they look kind of funny when they're all like puffed up. Sure. Real shaggy. Sure. A ruffled look. And they've got these awesome long spear-like beaks. And I say spear-like, but it's not spear-like. They do act as spears. So they'll literally like strike a fish in the water and spear it. But then I do want to see, like, what, after they spear it, how do they, like, open their beak to get around the fish? You know, wouldn't they, like, try to open their beak and it would just get caught in what they speared? It just completely <laughs> rips in half. <laughs> Anyways, that was funny. And so I talk about this striking motion. So their necks actually kind of curve up into, like, an S shape, which kind of allows them to then very quickly, because of the musculature in their necks, kind of strike their neck, like kind of straighten the S out real quick to strike a fish or a frog in the water. Cool, right? Yeah, super cool. Yeah, so what they'll do is they'll like stand with these big old beaks and these long, long legs and these big old feet in the water and they just kind of stand there and stand perfectly still. So the fish kind of get used to their legs being there and kind of quit paying attention. Uh And then that's kind of when they'll strike. So it'll kind of, you'll watch a heron that's just kind of standing there motionless for a long time. So that's what they're doing. They're just kind of letting the fish get comfortable with them being there. And then, boom, you're speared. Sure. They just hang out until the fish doesn't even notice that it's a bird. It thinks it's just twigs because there's no motion. Right. And its legs are so spindly and kind of dark that they could very much blend in kind of with like the debris on the bottom of the shallow waters. Mm. So what do they eat? A lot of fish. But sometimes they will eat rodents or even like ducks or gophers, things bigger than you would think, like snapping turtles. I know there's some videos of that. There's a lot of videos of herons devouring big things on YouTube. So they eat that. But I did also hear about a technique that the herons use to attract fish to them. So they're not just catching fish like, you know, snap out of the water. They will actually regurgitate sometimes into the water and then the fish come up and start feeding off of the barf floating in the water and then the heron's like boom caught you you're dead so it uses its barf as a sort of fish bait exactly that's exactly what it does i don't like that meredith isn't that weird yeah it's very tricky I came across just a new line of inquiry, just a world I know nothing about, which is like pond keeping. You know, those like koi ponds that people keep in their backyards or front yards or Uh any part of the yard, really. It's your world. Yeah. Apparently, I had no idea. I had no idea about this reality that there, one, is a world of like YouTubers that are devoted to pond enthusiasm. And herons are a big part of anti-pond enthusiasm in that herons will come and, like, eat all your koi in one night. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which I had no idea, but of course that would happen. You know, you're just giving, like, these herons or any birds that are into fish, like that easily available fish, just a delicious little buffet of meaty-ass koi. Yeah. Friend of the show, 
Blake, his dog Woodrow, who's a blonde Labrador and is certainly into fun, as we've established, blonde labs are, in fact, definitely more fun. That is canon. That is an official position. Ding, ding, ding. And I actually met a very mopey chocolate lab, like, not even an hour ago. Yeah, it sounds about right. Proved the point yet again. Blake's spouse, Marty, grew up on this kind of, like, farm experience, and for the wedding, a we all went out there for it. That's where the wedding was. Mm-hmm. And Woodrow was very excited, just splashing around in the koi pod. And <gasps> they realized the next day that there were, in fact, no kois <gasps> left in the koi pond and that Woodrow had eaten them all. So maybe Woodrow was just doing his best heron impression. Sounds like it. Oh, man. Did Woodrow get sick? Uh, You know, I don't remember. That's a great question. Probably. Honestly, I bet Woodrow was puking. <laughs> oh, man, because I could... Koi aren't tiny fish. They're big. That's like that would be like a meal for a human, like that size of fish. Yeah. Well, he was a growing boy. He needed his protein. He sure did. <laughs> you go, Woodrow. Sorry, Koi. So yeah, there's this whole pond life, and herons are apparently of great concern, which I really had no idea. So we're wrapping things up here. Just a few final quick facts. So about 15 year lifespan for our herons are great blue herons. And typically I don't have much about um, heron love or anything like that that was sadly absent from my sources. But herons, after they make love, it's about one brood per year, three to six eggs per clutch. And both mommy and daddy will sit and incubate the eggs. And baby herons, I am very excited to um, announce, have little like spikes as their hair is growing into, or their feathers is growing into, like, full slick back hair and hair, it's all, like, spiked up, like cute little teenage kids with spiky hair, and that's it. I mean, I love that. Yeah. How rebellious. I know. There was a picture of um, a heron nest, and it just had all these, like, big, I mean, they were baby birds, but they were, like, big old birds, because herons are big, but they all, like, none of them had that slick back characteristic, like, smooth head. It was all just these black spiky feathers. So cute. Well, that's great. Um, Well, I love that, Meredith. Thank you for your heron presentation. You're welcome. You really know how to flap right into my heart. Well, you know someone long enough, you learn their bird proclivities. Truer words have ne'er been spake. Um, Well, you want to take a break? Yes. Sup, Verso? Not much, Recto. Just munching on this delicious André Breton. It's surreal. Oh, I find him unsatisfying. I'll stick to this Vonnegut I'm munching on over here. Oh yeah, he's great. Say, Verso, have you heard about Brand Clubby's new product, Book Bites, targeted directly to us bookworms? I have not. Tell me more. Well, Book Bites is a new snacking system designed for the larva on the go. Like an individually wrapped book snack? Exactly, Verso. Using advanced miniaturization technology, the brand clubby Squawk and Science Squawk has miniaturized a full book to bite size. Do they include the cover? That's my favorite part. Of course. The cover is where books store all their fiber and nutrients. I love both fiber and nutrients. Myself also. Well, how do I get book bites? Just wiggle on over to the circulation desk, hop on the internet, and log into the Brand Clubby web portal. OMG, amazing. I'm heading there now. I'm ordering some Michel Foucault via interlibrary loan for my birthday next week. Oh, how risque. Ooh la la. Brand Clubby ships direct worldwide, and all book bites are individually wrapped for your protection. I'm going to wiggle on over there right now. Use code shh. Sorry. Use code reading is fundamental for 15% off at checkout. I'm so excited for these book bites. Pets I wish you had also 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 met also I wish you had also met Go Mets Go Reds please So it's a very special edition of Pets I wish you had also met This is our opportunity to meet dog gentleman friend of the pod oft talked about long time listener first time barker Dog gentleman Tyson and his owner Paul. We're happy to be here. Yes, welcome to the PCast, 
Paul and Tyson. Thank you. Yeah, you you won't be hearing much from Tyson because he's really never Barker would be the apt description. People have heard it maybe five times in his entire 13 years at this point. And that includes you, his owner. It, it does. Yeah, it includes me. Uh, he doesn't do a lot of the normal dog stuff. No, no barking, no begging, no licking. And, and he just came like that. I really can't take any, any credit for, uh, for the training. Well, seriously, no begging? Yeah. That's huge. He had mange when he was a puppy, which is a real thing, right? He was kind of... Yeah. Aw. Yep. Kept in a, you know, bed of straw on the farm. And so had to have all these chemical dips. He kind of had a traumatic childhood. But (gasps) uh, maybe because of that, he's always been a kind of a sensitive stomach guy. So he he's never had much people food. And so he doesn't even really know that that begging is a thing. <laughs> so. Doesn't know the joys of a pork chop dropped on the floor. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. So he is like quite literally a good boy. I, I think he's the definition of a good boy. Yeah, he's. Yeah, we like to throw that term around about dogs so, so much. But it seems like Tyson indeed is a genuine, true good boy. He fits the bill. Yeah, he's always been one of those highly evolved creatures. So is that where the gentleman moniker comes from? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Mike's had some firsthand experiences with the man himself. (laughs) Yeah, a number of firsthand experiences. He, He moved into my apartment for a summer. Well, for like a week one mm. summer, you know, but it was the best mm. week of the whole summer. Oh. <laughs> so we know Paul from Cincinnati, and that's when you first got Tyson? That's when Tyson first entered your life? Is that correct? Uh, that's true. Yeah, my my sister had him for his first nine months, all, almost a year, and she was in a situation where they, moving into a new apartment where they were going to test for strains of pit bull and he was never gonna pass that test he's he's a mutt he's uh he, we know he's part pit we've always speculated part lab because he does a lot of the signature lab moves like sitting on your foot and things like that <laughs> part black lab we believe yes too, right right so austere serious distinguished but not quite the sad mopey chocolate lab type that we've oft discussed on this <laughs> <laughs> Nor the sort of life of the party, extrovert, fun, bubbly, blonde labs. That's right. true. Yeah, we really, we can break labs down by color, can't we? Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. So do you want to go into a little bit about Tyson's relationship to the venerable Chile institution, Skyline Chile? Sure. Yeah, there is, <laughs> there is a story here. I was, when I was living in Cincinnati, uh, we had the occasion because uh, my girlfriend at the time was working on a uh, commercial television shoot for Skyline Chile. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the, the, you know, filming like five years worth of spots, I think, in, in one weekend or something like that, working on a tight budget. Right. That's a lot of chili. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and the director was interested in having a dog come to the set to do a little filming. And of course, everybody was kind of flashing their their cell phones in his face. And, and <laughs> out of the lineup, he he chose Tyson. He really he's got this kind of very distinctive white star on his chest, which makes him kind of stand out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The director said, that's the one bring me that dog. And so I arrived <laughs> with the talent uh, to the set. And, you know, they kind of immediately brought him down front in front of like 50 people. And they wanted him to sit up on this box, which he dutifully did. But then he was just kind of sitting there with his head down. You know, why are all these people looking at me? Oh. And, and the director started to, you know, bark and kind of yip and make make dog sounds so Tyson <laughs> received direction which he which he took well <laughs> he, uh, he perked right up kind of you know ears in the ready head cocked to the side and made adorable faces and uh, you know we hit the craft services and we were out the door so. <laughs> sounds like a perfect day yeah inquiring minds want to know or is this was there stuff at craft services other than uh, skyline yeah, chili <laughs> yeah I, I don't think I signed any NDAs there was like a 
there, there, were, there was no Skyline Chili at the craft services table, actually. It was all Gold Star. <laughs> That's right. Shock. Uh, all from the Crosstown rivalry. Right. It was all Price Hill Chili. <laughs> That's right. Damn it. What a uh, cute story. I love that. I love that about Tyson. Of course, he would become the chili star dog of Cincinnati. Yeah. We, you know, we looked for it to air every every year that we were there after and and we never actually saw it so the execs must not have <laughs> liked the idea of a of a dog they've been running the same variation on the skyline commercial since i've been a wee tot in cincinnati so maybe you know there's real resistance to change over there at the skyline corporate but you know well, we will keep an eye out for future tyson appearances that's right anybody back in cincinnati let us know Keep an eye out. If he Keep an eye out. Well, Mike, did you have any other queries? Well, I just am wondering, Paul, if you can kind of take us through a day in the life of Tyson and this, our current unusual times. How is he coping with this period of uncertainty? Yeah, he's he's eased into it, I would say, as, as he does <laughs> most things. He's, he's 13 now, so he's definitely entered that geriatric phase of dog life. Mm-hmm. What is that in dog years? Uh, 13, it's always relative to size too, right? So for a 60 pound guy, he's uh, probably late 70s, early 80s, something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he, you know, still enjoys his walks, still gets himself up and down the stairs, still pretty spry overall. And after the morning walk, he's, uh, you know, enjoys his breakfast and then waits around for for the big walk we do the big one at like one o'clock he's out for a half an hour nice wow but then he you know settles in for a long afternoon of napping before dinner time and the evening walk and then like after the evening walk that's his most that's his most active time you know we come back from the evening walk and he's looking to play he wants to chew the bone throw the ball around a little bit (laughs) but then yeah back down for the night he does he is allowed to sleep in the bed he always did that. We never got him out of that. <laughs> so, but yeah, he sleeps hard. And that's really when he makes the most noise is kind of in his sleep. You'll occasionally catch him barking or, you know, running after something and uh, little squeaks and murmurs in the night. So, <laughs> oh, that's... You know, that's wonderful. He's found his voice through his dreams. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. How sweet. I would like to share a quick little Tyson Mm -hmm. testimonial because we were recently reunited after several years apart. A couple years ago, I went down to Philly for a weekend because Paul and I were collaborating on this sound sculpture that we were installing at uh, UArts, the university there where Paul teaches. And Tyson and I hadn't seen each other in 10 years. And so I walked in and he was just kind of greeted me as if I was a, you know, normal person. I'm like, Tyson, it's been so long, you know, like, what's up? And then he kind of just sat down and looked at me for like two minutes. (laughs) And then I could see that he realized who I was and he perked up and he jumped around and got very excited and came up and just pushed himself up against me. And I'm like, that is a righteous dog. This dog had to dig deep into his memories to put the pieces together. But then once he did, he was just like, oh, my God, it's been so long. How you doing, buddy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a rare quality in a creature. Yes. The true gentleman. A true gentleman never forgets another true gentleman. Mm-hmm. Great. I guess I guess that's a, a good place to leave it. Check out our social media for glamour shots of Tyson in today's recording session, mm-hmm. Animal Fan Club Pod. Right on. Yeah. Pets I wish you had also met. 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 Pets I wish you had met. Also met. Yes. Pets. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. And Amelia, this show isn't about exfoliants. Philo. Cordata. Spine times the right time. Class. Actinopterygy. Rafe and fishes. 
order. Gymnoti forms come through Simone Biles. Family. Gymnoti day, naked back, knife, fishes. Genus. Electrophorus, only one extant species. Species. Electricus, ground yourself. Don't be shocked, because this electric eel will zap your socks. Ugh, scary. Not my socks. Meredith, I'd like to come clean about something. Okay. When I was a child in fourth grade, we had to do this big project about a saltwater creature. And so, of course, I was like, well, the electric eel is a pretty cool fish. I want to learn more about it. And so I did a bunch of research. And a while into my research, I discovered that it was actually a freshwater creature, (gasps) which I then told my teacher and was like, I've already done all this research. I've been to the library a couple times. And I've only now just discovered that it does not fit the criteria for this assignment which is to say it is not a saltwater creature. It's a freshwater creature. Right. And she was like, well, then you have to redo the assignment. And so I aborted the research on the electric eel and instead did the moray eel. Yeah. And uh, now I'm returning to my electric eel exploration with, I guess, at least 20 years of perspective, which is a strange thing to say out loud, but I know. But here I am. So just a, some quick little tax facts. Obviously, Kingdom Animalia, we are not surprised. Phylum chordata, so it's a <laughs> spined creature. It's a creature with a backbone or a dorsal nerve cord. Yeah, or a dorsal nerve cord. The class is Actinopterygii, which is our ray-finned fishes. Most fishes mm-hmm. are ray-finned fishes. Right. And the fins that you think of when you think of a fish fin with that kind of like spiny thing connected by the stuff, that is a ray finned fish. Yes. As opposed to a cartilaginous fish, which would be like a shark or a stingray. Right. Would be cartilaginous. Stingery. Stingery. Our gymnotiforms, which are the knife fishes. <gasps> and I said, let's hear it for Simone Biles, the gymnasts, gymnotiforms. So they're a group of. Teleost bony fishes, commonly known as the neotropical or South American knife fishes. Ooh. They have long bodies and swim using the undulations of their elongated anal fin. <laughs> they are found almost exclusively in freshwater. The only exception to this freshwater rule is that occasionally some species may visit brackish water to feed. I've always loved the term brackish water. Yeah, it's pretty fun, isn't it? It's just a silly word for kind of a simple concept. Yeah. It's just where the two waters mix because they have to at some point. Yeah. And it's brackish. I know. (laughs) It's like brack. Brack from space goes coast to coast. I mean, who doesn't love space ghost coast to coast? They are mostly nocturnal. And they're capable of producing electric fields for navigation, communication, and in the case of our friend, the electric eel, attack and defense. And again, this is all the way at order. So all the species in this order, the 250 valid species in 34 genera and five families are capable of producing electric fields for navigation and communication. But the electric eel, the Electrophorus electricus, is able to actually use it for attack and defense. Wow, okay, okay, gotcha. Next we get to the family, the Gymnotidae. These are the naked back knife fish, and here it breaks down to about 45 species and two genera. But then the genus in the species, it's one extant species in the genus, the Electrophorus electricus. I like that name. Yeah, it's pretty sexy. It's pretty sexy. Electrophorus electricus. So the organs that produce the electricity are in the abdomen. They take up four-fifths of the animal's body, and it can generate two different types of discharges. There's like a low voltage and a high voltage. (laughs) It's three pairs. The main organ is the hunter's organ, and then there's also the sac's organ. They're made up of electrolytes. Oh, electrocytes. Excuse me. Not like Gatorade or Pedialyte. Not like Gatorade or Pedialyte, no, electrocytes. And they're lined up so a current of ions can flow through them, and they're stacked so each one adds to the potential difference. So it's kind of like a battery. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so when the eel finds its prey, the brain sends a signal. Well, the electric eel, it's a misnomer. You can't really call it an eel because it's not a true eel. It's a fish. So when the Electrophorus electricus finds its prey, it sends a signal through the nervous system to the electrocytes, and that opens the ion channel, which allows sodium to flow through, reversing the polarity. And this sudden difference in electric potential generates an electric current in a manner similar to a battery, with the stacked plates each producing an electric potential difference. They're also capable of controlling their prey's nervous system what? by sending these electrical pulses. So it's the same as, have you ever used one of those like TENS things that you like put the electrodes on your body and then you zap your muscles? It's like a physical therapy device. Oh, and it can like uh, contract your muscle? Yeah, it's the same yes, I, thing, yeah. you know, they like... Oh, that's such a weird feeling. Yeah, so it can force movement or by kind of jamming the elect- like the electrical impulses of its prey's muscles it can keep it from escaping. Whoa. Yeah, and it can make a shock a shock up to 860 volts and up to 1 amp of current. That's like kind of intense. Like two like a you know a wall voltage is like 120 to 240 volts typically. In the US it's usually 120 volts. And what did you say it was on the eel or the this creature? 860. This non-eel. Yes, this non-eel eel. Oh, wow. So that's like considerably more. Yeah, and like when you charge your phone, that's five volts. And typically one amp of current. Or for like charging like a tablet, it would be like two amps of current. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty substantial shock, you know? Yeah. It's reportedly enough to feel like a, almost like a stun gun. <gasps> Oh, my goodness. And it's a common risk for aquarium caretakers and biologists who are attempting to handle or examine these creatures. Wow. And so that's the high-voltage shock. But then the low-voltage is used to sense the surrounding environment. Hmm. They'll use the high-voltage pulses separated by two milliseconds to detect and locating prey by causing them to twitch and then sensing the movement. Oh, Okay. Yeah, and then it can use a string of high-voltage pulses up to 400 per second to attack and stun or paralyze the target. Whoa. So it kind of, like, cycles these things on. It can cycle on and off very quickly. Did you get a sense of, like, how far away a target could be and still receive a shock? I guess of, like, what's the range on these electric signals, I guess, that it can send out? I mean, it was saying that they could go a few feet um, I don't remember the exact. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember offhand, Meredith, but I know that it can go a few feet. It's not just like right next to it. It does have a little bit of a range. Very interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's so terrifying. It's pretty scary, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, actually, famed uh, engineer Michael Faraday, uh, he extensively tested the electrical properties of the electric eel. And he carefully and allegedly humanely measured the electrical impulses produced by the animal by pressing shaped copper paddles and saddles against the specimen. Paddles and saddles. (laughs) And so that was when he uh, determined and quantified the direction and magnitude of the electrical current and proved that the impulses were in fact electrical by observing sparks and deflections and a galvanometer and then uh it's you know this is like an interesting creature because it creates electricity and that's obviously useful so there's researchers that argue artificial cells could be built that not only replicate the electrical behavior but also improve on them Hmm. so maybe this is a way to power medical implants and other microscopic devices okay very interesting so they live in the fresh waters of the Amazon and Orinoco River basins in South America. As I mentioned, they are not a saltwater creature, creature, which is a shocking discovery that I made at a young age. Are they fans of Enya because they ride along the Orinoco flow? I can't imagine a world where anyone is not a fan of Enya. Amen. Whether, you know, all chordata, chordates, if you will, I would say are fans of Enya generally. <laughs> Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. 
So they like a, you know, floodplain, a swamp, a creek, a small river, a coastal plain. Mm -hmm. They like a muddy bottom in calm or stagnant waters. Um, They'll feed on invertebrates, but adults may consume fish and small mammals like rats. Ooh. Ooh. That seems like such a battle royale of, like, kind of icky creatures. Yeah. The firstborn hatchlings will eat other eggs and embryos from later clutches. Ooh. And then juveniles eat invertebrates like shrimp and crabs. Uh, Meredith, we've arrived at your favorite portion, the electric eel romance. All right. So the... In the dry season, the male will make a nest from his saliva, and into that, the female will lay her eggs. Okay. As many as 3,000 young hatch from the eggs in one nest. Ugh. And uh, yeah, that's pretty gross, right? Yeah, that freaks me out. This is another animal just kind of on my icky list. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not like, (laughs) it's a little gross of an animal, you know? Yeah. If I'm honest. Yeah. That's it. It's please. This is your podcast. By all means, be honest. Yeah. Well, it's our podcast, really. Well, but honesty is encouraged. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, is what else do you want to know? Do you have any questions, queries? Um. So as far as like your moray eel, that was that is saltwater, the moray eel. Affirmative. OK, so. I'm thinking flotsam and jetsam from The Little Mermaid. That's salt water, presumably, right? Flotsam and jetsam, yeah. But didn't they have electrical Ooh. like powers? Ursula's little henchmen. Interesting. Those eels. And I'm pretty sure they could electrocute because I think that's what gave Ursula the power to like give Ariel the pen to like sign her name. To sell her soul to Ursula or her voice. Are there any electrified eels in the Atlant or in the um, saltwater in the oceans? Well, no, not really. Occasionally in brackish water, but no. That's what you said. Okay. I mean, I know just about just enough about electricity to be dangerous, and I just uh, I think that in saltwater the rules are different for electricity. So I imagine that it would be yeah. more difficult for a creature to yeah. have this type of electrical impulse in salt water, but I don't actually know enough to have a really strong sense of that. Um, It's just opening a further line of inquiry, really. We should have asked Tyson when he was on, because I feel like that's something Tyson would know. Yeah. So Disney was wrong, essentially, with that characterization, I think is what I'm getting at. I would never go so far as to say they were wrong, but I would say that it was perhaps a mischaracterization. Okay. Fair enough. And then, Meredith, I'll leave you with this social media recommendation. <laughs> you can follow Miguel Watson, who is an electric eel at the Tennessee Aquarium Rivers of the World Gallery <laughs> on Twitter. And they've rigged up this apparatus at the aquarium so when Miguel Watson releases a severe enough electrical impulse that it automatically sends a tweet, <laughs> which tend to be poetic, like... Wham and ding and crack, <sighs> kang, and it looks like you can submit ideas because they reference some people in, you know, uh, it looks like you might. Well, I don't actually know if that's true, but it's very fun. His Twitter stream is very fun. And his name is Miguel Watson. Yeah, W A T T S O N. Eel Electric Miguel is the Twitter handle at E E L E C T R I C. M-I-G-U-E-L. Electric Miguel. That is really cute. That's the cutest name for an eel I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a what a great place for a break. Yeah, I'd say. All right. Dan, don't you think it's a positively glorious morning? Well, Pixie, if by glorious you mean sweltering and sticky, then sure, I guess it is. Don't you see how the diffused sunbeams alight on my eyelashes? Didn't you notice how the delightful ribbons on my straw hat blow gently in the breeze? Didn't you notice how my apron has pockets? Straw hats with ribbons? Aprons with pockets? Pixie, what the hell has gotten into you? You don't even have eyelashes. Dan, 
Don't you ever wish we could go back to a simpler life? Fully and wholeheartedly embrace the beauty of nature? Don't you miss the quiet enjoyment of warm, freshly baked bread? Pixie, you seem to have forgotten. We're Komodo dragons. You know, the swallow your food whole, eat your children, bleed from your gums, primitive AF living dinosaurs. I don't think it gets much more simple than that. But Dan, what about those of us Motos who want something different? Who want to live a life that's a little less... Como dit-on? Savage? Damn it, Pixie. Now you're speaking French? Who put these ideas in your head? Who else but Brand Clubby? With their new line of Komodo Co's products, even the roughest and meanest of creatures can explore their softer, gentler side. So that's where your Fond de Siècle straw boater's hat came from? And your warm, fresh baked bread? And that adorable kitten print apron? It sure is. Komodo Co's can outfit every one of your cottage core fantasies. Come on, Dan. I'm sure you have at least one peaceful yearning in your body. Well, I guess I have always wanted a dragonfly to land on my nose. Or to share a cup of tea with a mouse on a toadstool table. That's the spirit, Dan. And if there's any company that can make all of that happen for you and more, it's Brand Clubby. Just log on to the Brand Clubby web portal and use code SAVAGEBUTSWEET at checkout. Splendid! Oats or gratin? Oui. We are in the French feed bag. Le bag de feet. Ooh la la! Bonjour! Cut the crap! Allison from Columbus wants to know, Why do bears get all the attention for shitting in the woods? What about all the other wonderful creatures who also shit in the woods? Allison, I personally think that's a great question. Yeah, Allison, good job on that question. I'm not quite sure that I know the answer to that. I always associate the DuBert's shit in the woods with is the Pope Catholic? Right. Which then becomes are bears Catholic? Does the Pope shit in the woods? Which I think is fun. (laughs) I love that. So maybe it's for that reason? That's fun. Or like we could just rephrase it. So like, do forest animals shit in the woods? Yeah. I would even go so far as to say just boreal creatures. Do boreal creatures shit in the woods? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that we should make this more inclusive. I don't think it needs to be bears only. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like this idea of opening up the shitting recognition or the scat recognition of all creatures. Yeah. So I guess um, the official position is that we're no longer going to say do bears shit in the woods. We're going to say do boreal creatures shit in the woods. Yes. Yes. Yeah, ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Clarissa from San Jose asks, who'd win in a speed-eating contest, the Chilean rose tarantula or the emperor scorpion? Oh, wow, Clarissa. This is very interesting. And I would, you know, normally I don't like these kind of, like, predatory or, let me rephrase this, YouTube, I don't usually like YouTube videos where it's like one animal like consuming another. I know it's a fact of life and it's just part of being alive, but I'd make a choice to not watch those. Anyhow, I think I would, I would kind of like to see a head to head in this case. Like how many crickets Sure. in two minutes? Yeah, me too. I guess that this raises an interesting question because if I remember right, the... Emperor Scorpion uses enzymes to partially digest the creature outside of its body, and then it only intakes yes. things after the digestion process has already started. So I feel like the Chilean rose tarantula would win in a more traditional speed-eating contest, but we might have a little bit of a tortoise in the hare situation. Sure. Where the emperor can consume maybe more insects per hour, than the rose tarantula can, 
but the rose tarantula can consume more insects in two minutes than the emperor scorpion can. Ooh, that's a very interesting perspective on this. I like that. Yeah. Cool. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that would be my guess. That's my guess. Well, I so, think literarily, I like it. <laughs> I like great. The, I like recalling the old time fable of the tortoise and the hare. So our official position, Clarissa, is that in a traditional speed eating contest, the Chilean rose tarantula would win. However, comma, if the speed eating contest was a longer format, and maybe over the course of like quantity that you can eat in a day, then the emperor scorpion can't be discounted because of the rabbit and turtle, the tortoise and the hare axiom. Right. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, and our final question. Greg from Atlanta asks us, would you rather be a horse whisperer or a fly whisperer? Would you rather know what's going on in the mind of a fly and be able to communicate with the flies or communicate with horses? I guess I've just encountered more flies on a daily basis in my life. Same. And, Same. you know, what about the expression, oh, to be a fly on the wall? Well, if you can communicate with the flies, then you can benefit from the fly on the wall experience without the risk. That's what I was thinking. Like, I don't really spend too much time around horses, though. I mean, that would be really cool if I did. Sure. But I just feel like if I could pick a skill, being the fly whisperer would be a much more um, frequently used skill. Sure. I also think that it could open up, like, conversations with other bugs, you know? Yeah. Like, if I'm communicating with the flies, then maybe they can communicate with other bugs, too. And, like, all of a sudden the door is open for you know, uh, sort of inter-phylum discourse. Ooh, I like that. Well, I think we've covered it. Yeah, fish position, fly whisperer. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, keep the questions coming, animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. And I hope that, well, I guess we hope that you have a pleasant week in animals. Week. Au revoir. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.